This whole world wild and hard and weird on top. Welcome to Now Playing's Wild at Heart retrospective series. Rockin' good news. Part of the Now Playing David Lynch review series. For me, it's a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom. Hosted by Stuart. The way your head works is God's own private mystery. Jacob. I'm going to dance with the devil under the pale moonlight. And Arnie. My dog barks some. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we continue looking at all of David Lynch's films. Don't mind if I fucking do. And join Stuart, Arnie, and Jacob at NowPeakingPodcast.com for reviews of every episode of the Twin Peaks series. I'm making my lunch! These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Santos, I'm having second thoughts. Guess what? There's no turning back, remember? Listener discretion is advised. Okay, it's time. The show must begin. Today we're discussing Wild at Heart, starring Nicolas Cage, Laura Dern, Willem Dafoe, Crispin Glover, Diane Ladd, Isabella Rossellini, Harry Dean Stanton, directed by David Lynch. This is the now playing co-host who's weird at heart and wild on top, Arnie. Stuart in LA. This is Jacob. And did I ever tell you this here podcast represents a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom? Makes you look like a clown. (laughs) You've said that once or twice. I want that snakeskin jacket. So do I. (laughs) That, That was a badass coat. And it's something Elvis would wear, so it fits this movie so well. It'll surprise you none to know that that came from Nicolas Cage's personal wardrobe. He picked that out. He had had it for years. When it comes to Nick Cage, very little surprises me these days. You know, he's quite the prop actor. I remember when Snake Eyes came out and I was reading an interview with him where he went on and on about how he demanded having those golden guns and that every movie he wants something on him to make him distinctive. Like he picks one item and says to the director, this is coming with me. And so I wonder if it started here because Nick Cage at this time, sure, there was Peggy Sue got married and... There was Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and yes, he's Francis Ford Coppola's nephew, but he was not Nicolas Cage when this came out. He was a star. It should be said he was in Moonstruck, got an Oscar nomination. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Raising Arizona. He was a known quantity, but no. Was he the king of overacting? Not quite (laughs) yet. Maybe the prince. I I do feel like if anyone let Nick Cage be Nick Cage, it's going to be David Lynch. Oh, you want to do some weird voice? You want to do whatever? Yeah, go with it. Mm -hmm. He was the only choice for this role, and Laura Dern was the only choice for hers. This came to David Lynch in an instant, but I guess in order to talk about that, we should wonder why did David Lynch choose to do this movie just as Twin Peaks was taking off it actually forced him to step away from the series let other people direct meant that he was not as involved particularly in the second season what made him want to do wild at heart yeah there will be a shadow over this movie for my entire life because basically this film killed Twin Peaks 
Lynch left. Twin Peaks went rudderless. You can hear us talk about that at nowpeakingpodcast.com. And it never recovered. He made a choice to go do this instead of keep his baby breathing. To be fair, he made this after they made the pilot and they were shooting the first season while he was making this. But the first season and this were shot at the same time. But it kept him in the editing room a lot. And while they were drafting scripts for season two, which is about where we're about where we're covering now is what they were working on. And yes, Lynch's involvement, he just we talk about it. If you can join us over at Now Peaking, I'm having a great time looking back at that series. Love the series, but clearly Arnie is correct. There is a quality drop that is quite measurable once they move past that Laura Palmer storyline you do wish that Lynch had been more hands-on but he was kind of spread thin he was doing a lot of things and one of them was yes this project I have to believe the biggest reason why he would step away from his tv series do this film is it had been four years. It had been four years since he had shot Blue Velvet, and I think he was itching to make a feature film. If you're a film director, you want to make films, and TV, particularly at that time, is very different. So I think that with so many projects we already talked about on that Twin Peaks pilot episode, the Marilyn Monroe movie, the Steve Martin comedy, and of course Ronnie Rocket, all those projects just kept failing to have one that just sort of fell into his lap. I mean, this movie came together quick. He was introduced to the book in early 1989, and by September, it was in the can. I mean, he wrote the script in six days for the first draft, in a couple months to get to a shooting script, and he got the funding, got the people jumping on board, and was filming really in record time. Within six months, this went from nothing to a completed or at least a film project. And then he took a lot of time in the editing room. He actually worked all the way up until its Cannes Film Festival premiere the day before he finished editing the film. It was easy for him to make in that sense. He did not have to beg, borrow, and steal. They wanted him to make this project, and when he read the book, he wanted to make it. I wanted to see it when it came out. I mean, it came out in the summer of 1990, between seasons one and two of Twin Peaks, when my fever for that show couldn't be any higher. However, I was 16 years old and living in a town where they would not let me into a rated R movie. And so I eventually saw this a couple years later, I think maybe 91, 92 on video. Yeah, I couldn't have been bigger on Lynch and Twin Peaks, and for whatever reason, I'm trying to remember, I didn't go either. I don't think it was because they wouldn't sell me a ticket. I honestly think that I had heard the bad buzz. Honestly, while this movie did win the top prize in France, when it premiered in May, when it came out in theaters in August, it was a real mixed opinion about it. And I definitely was on the side of, when I finally saw it, not being particularly enamored with it. It wasn't Twin Peaks. I think it's fair to say they marketed it that way. <laughs> Certainly, if you saw the trailers, they wanted you to believe it was David Lynch, Chris Isaac's Wicked Game, and Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks, but it certainly had its own flavor, and I just wasn't as compelled to see this movie, and so I caught up with it on VHS. 
Yeah, and this is my first viewing of it. It's a movie I'd heard of, usually because, you know, you see some montage of, like, crazy Nick Cage faces, and while at heart's got plenty of them. But I didn't, once I realized it was Lynch, I'm like, oh, well, no, I understand why he looks crazy in this. So, But, yeah, this is my first time getting around to watching it. Yeah, I accidentally stumbled upon the bonus feature that was, like, the television ads for this, and it was all Twin Peaks, Newsweek says it's great, Variety loves it, Twin Peaks. And it, they had, like, five commercials that seemed the same. It certainly had its detractors. I mean, Roger Ebert, who famously panned Blue Velvet, led the booing section. When David Lynch got up to get the award, Roger Ebert stood up and went, boo! I mean, he was really mad that the jury had given him best film for Wild at Heart. And I think my brother had seen it, and he told me it was bad. And that usually did color my perspective. I can't tell you how many times Poltergeist 2, I was excited to see something, and then my brother's like, eh, don't do it. And I just didn't end up going. Yeah, I usually find myself agreeing and respecting Roger Ebert's opinion. But to stand up and boo? Well, I mean, no matter what I think of the movie, I wouldn't stand up and boo in a public place in front of the creator. <laughs> you know what? I, I've been to Cannes. It happens. They love what they love, and they hate what they hate, and uh, they can be very, very vocal. Uh, they're passionate, and I think that's fair. Movies certainly like this, it's very romantic, that it brings strong feelings on either side, I think is appropriate, but it is a part of the spirit of the Cannes Film Festival that you let the filmmaker know what you think of it, and I'll just go ahead and say it. It's not nearly as harsh as when he brought Firewalk with me two years later. Well, that he may deserve completely. There are a couple of ritualistic things that happen in this movie that he might have deserved for Firewalk with me, but we're going <laughs> to get to that. Certainly. Now, I mentioned that he shot this very, very fast, but it probably will surprise you none to know that when he got down to cutting it, he wound up with yet again a four-hour version and so there was a huge battle he did have final cut but he owed the studio a theatrical runtime which meant that they didn't care what he turned over but it had to be more or less two hours and so it was a real battle for him to condense everything that he had shot and to get what was actually a very slight book. I have read the Barry Gifford novel, as well as its seven sequels. Yes, there are eight Sailor and Lula novels. I read them all. What? There are eight books? No. Yes, eight books. Jesus Christ. And most of them were written in this time period. Most of them did come in the early 1990s. About six of them were published within five years of this movie. And the last two were published in the last decade. But it doesn't require four hours. I will just say that there's no reason for it to be that long. And Lynch had changed and extended a lot of things. And then I think he got into a bind. I think that he was trapped being like, well, I need to tell the story. But the way that I directed it means that I can't condense it down to two hours. And so... What we have here, I think, is definitely a compromise movie. I've always believed that you don't get the full story because they turned over a two-hour cut. And there is an unrated cut and a rated cut, and they're more or less the same thing. That doesn't change anything. The unrated cut, all it does is it shows you more graphically how Bobby Peru died. Wow, I... <laughs> 
I'm assuming I saw the theatrical cut, and it's already pretty graphic. I couldn't imagine how it gets any more graphic. But yeah, as we go through this, I definitely feel like I'm like, why? Why is this person even here? Because where's the payout? And I guess that's on the cutting room floor. It's come back though. Interestingly enough, in 2013, there was a lime green, is what they refer to it as. There was a director's box set, whole bunch of DVDs, previously released material. It was stuff that if you were a fan, you already owned it. But it came with a mystery disc. And nobody knew what was on this mystery disc. And it was a big high-ticket item. I think it was about $200 to rebuy everything that you already had. Well, I will just share that. I didn't buy it, but I was able to contact someone that had it and watch this mystery disc. And there is like a whole movie. There's about 70 minutes, 32 scenes cut out from Wild at Heart that I was able to watch. So I do feel like I have seen the movie that it could be as well as, of course, the movie that it is. I think I've seen Wild at Heart about three times, and I've just watched this footage. Wow, that sounds really intriguing. And I'll go ahead and share. I don't feel like the best cut of this movie is what exists in its final theatrical release. But in order to talk about what's there and what's not there, I think, Arnie, why don't you give him the plot? We'll get into Wild at Heart. Sailor Ripley and Lula Fortune are madly in love. Played by Nick Cage and Laura Dern, respectively, the two are having a passionate relationship, but they're separated due to Lula's mother, Marietta, played by Laura Dern's real-life mother, Diane Ladd. So follow me on this. There's a lot of characters and a lot of convolution going on. But Marietta was cheating on her husband with gangster Marcelo Santos. And then she had Santos kill her husband by setting him on fire. Well, Sailor was a driver for Santos and was outside... Lula's house the night Santos set her husband on fire. Marietta's afraid he'll reveal to Lula that she was involved in the murder of Lula's father. So Marietta hires a man to kill Sailor very publicly at a party. (laughs) And when Sailor kills the attacker in self-defense, he's sentenced to prison for two years. So all that setup happens in like five minutes. Yeah, that's the opening. (laughs) It gets more convoluted. But when Sailor gets out, to Marietta's dismay, Lula is still in love with the man, and she picks him up from the pen. The two then decide to run away from their North Carolina home and move to California without telling anyone. Nervous, Marietta sends not one but two people to retrieve her daughter. First, she sends her boyfriend, private detective Johnny Farragut, played by Harry Dean Stanton, to bring back Lula, but she's unconfident in Farragut's ability, so she gets Santos to hire a man to kill Sailor. But as Santos and Farragut are both sleeping with Marietta, Santos decides to hire a man to kill Johnny as well, even though Marietta begs him not to. So Johnny is killed in New Orleans, but Sailor and Luna continue to Big Tuna, Texas, where they run out of money and hole up in a shitty motel. More... Lula has gotten pregnant while on the trip. So when Sailor is asked to rob a feed store by Willem Dafoe's character Bobby Peru, Sailor agrees. But it's a double cross. Peru was the man hired by Santos to kill Sailor. But Sailor escapes and Peru trips, blowing his own head off with his shotgun. Sailor is then arrested for taking part in the robbery. But about six years later, he's released from the pen and Lula and her son are waiting for him. And after a little bit of of a kerfuffle and a visit from Cheryl Lee as the good witch from Wizard of Oz, we'll talk about it. They ride off together into the sunset 
as Marietta is left screaming and credits are left rolling. They don't write off. They they stand around singing Love Me Tender. <laughs> yeah, it's an Elvis movie. It's a Marilyn Monroe movie. It's a Wizard of Oz remake. Is it a David Lynch movie? I've got to say I side with the producer, Monty Montgomery, the man that optioned Wild at Heart the book. He wanted to make it himself, and he just brought it to David Lynch to help him write a draft of the script. And then when David became so in love with it, he was like, all right, you make it and I'll produce. But originally, he didn't think that this was the kind of movie that David Lynch would like or make. And I think what he's saying when he said that is, who would have thought that David Lynch would have made a romance? It's kind of a surprise, yes? This feels like a lighter comedy almost to me. It's like David Lynch wants to just do his weird rom-com. And I was not expecting that. To me, this feels very David Lynch. I mean, coming out of Twin Peaks around the same time, he definitely played with love stories there. I think we saw a little bit of one in Blue Velvet. Well, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, there was a fucking love letter straight to your heart. (laughs) But... When I look at the attitude and everything... I'm not talking style. I mean, let's not look at the style in this movie. I'm not. The content. Yeah. The content feels like Lynch to you? I'm surprised. Well, because I don't think Lynch is unromantic. I think he's extreme in all of his emotions. And this isn't your standard love story. This is not Forget Paris or one of those... (laughs) True enough. Yeah, this is a hardcore... Yeah, they're in love... But this is an extreme version of that. Yeah, but look, looking at like yeah, just the basic storyline and this wild couple and weird allusions to it almost feels like a Coen's Brothers film to me. But then you got David Lynch, and we're gonna have a lot of shots of fire and, and weird stuff going on. I don't know if that's from the book or if that's his own flair. No pun intended. <laughs> But, yeah, the bare bones of this, I don't think, you know, if you just told me the basic plot, I don't think of David Lynch. Well, here's the thing. When I think about sex and the way he's presented it, I mean, Eraserhead, you wind up with a monster baby. And Blue Velvet, you end up emulating your monster parents. It just feels like this is not a guy that is lustful, that would see two people having a carnal passion and affair as something that was positive. But what's surprising is these are good kids. Sailor and Lula are really wholesome. I mean, even though he goes to jail at the beginning of this movie, I don't feel like it's anything more than self-defense. I don't see that these characters ever do anything but just express pure love. And that is a surprise coming from David Lynch, who sees passion and obsession usually as having dark currents. I think there's some dark currents in these characters. I mean, he was a driver for a mobster. The way he handles himself when he's attacked and pummels a man to death with his bare hands. He's seen action before. He's going to do some dark things. She's going to do one very dark thing that I really want to talk about, but it's way late in the movie. There's darkness here, but I think it's kind of like the Blue Velvet. They're trying to be good people in a world that's trying to pull them down. The world is certainly depraved, but what I think is maybe Lynch was open to this because he was in love, because he had been having an an ongoing, although somewhat discreet, relationship with Isabella Rossellini. And so I think that they had this kind of relationship. It was them against the world, that she took a lot of hits 
for how he presented her in Blue Velvet. She lost her makeup contract, her modeling contract with Revlon. Some of her mother's friends, you know, her mother was the Hollywood star Ingrid Bergman, like Katherine Hepburn, said ugly things to her in an elevator because of this movie. I think that it was it was hard for her to have this be her big famous role. And likewise, she got David Lynch some art world work and the art critics were very snooty towards him. I do feel like while things were going well between the two of them while they were putting this movie together... I do feel like maybe the rest of the world wasn't so accepting. And that's what I think. When I think of road movies, you either have a couple that hates each other, gets thrown together, and then through the course of their adventure falls in love, or you have them as being soulmates and it's them against the world. And that's what this one represents. At the beginning of this, I'm thinking natural born killers filter through David Lynch. It's not that at all. They're more or less a good couple. Yeah, they're rebels, but I don't see them as bad people. I do see this as two rebels in love, and it's portrayed pretty positively. To a degree, I'll agree with that. But not to get too much into deconstructing and saying everything Lynch makes is autobiographical, but he was twice divorced at this point and with Isabella Rossellini, right? Yeah, that's true. But this is his most, this is his first famous wife. Were they married or just together? Oh, you're right. They were, I think, briefly engaged. They never did get married. And he did break it up. Actually, shortly after this movie premiered, he sort of distanced himself. From my understanding, I did read Isabella Rossellini's autobiography. Uh, during these years, it was very positive. They were both working. They weren't always have, making time for each other, but they did like each other and respect each other. My reason for bringing that up is if you've gone from a normal wife and then probably a second normal wife to then a Hollywood model, perhaps passion is being discovered for the first time. <laughs> I'm sure it was very different than the other ones. And I don't, I mean, he remained friendly with all of his uh, relationships. I think the only one that he hasn't remained friendly with is Isabella. Yeah, so that's just why I wonder if we're seeing a passionate love story is he's now with an Italian model and not a nice girl from Michigan. <laughs> Be that as it may, I do think that these are dreamers, and David Lynch characters tend to be dreamers, and they have a dream of following the yellow brick road and finding their life. One of the big tweaks of the book-to-screen adaptation, I'm sure it comes as no surprise to you, is that David Lynch insists on putting Wizard of Oz here. Really, almost from the beginning, we get, uh, when he goes to jail, uh, a shot of him inside the crystal ball with the Wicked Witch, you know, kind of hovering her hands over it. I mean, since we're bringing up The Wizard of Oz now, look, I, I didn't watch those Resident Evil movies. I listened to the podcast. I know there was some talk of like, oh, Alice and the Red Queen. And look, it's just like Alice in Wonderland. Look, Lady Lynch, much more talented than Paul W.S. Anderson. Maybe. Slightly. This Wizard of Oz stuff, uh, I don't know if it really pays out or if it creates any deeper <laughs> meaning here. It just feels like jokes to me. Yeah, it does not pay out. I kept waiting to see if, like, the big thing when you think of Wizard of Oz is the man behind the curtain being revealed, right? I was waiting for that. There are a lot of Wizard of Oz references here, but I think you're dead right bringing up Resident Evil, Jacob, because the incredulity Stuart expressed when I was saying that was Alice in Wonderland, and you're like, to what point? That's how I felt when I was trying to really sit and analyze all the fucking Wizard of Oz stuff here. 
yeah, why is Jack Nance Toto and where's the lion? Who's the scarecrow? Like, if you try to do that, it's futile in this movie. There is a lion in the movie. We'll get to it. There is. That's true. There are many connections, but why you would do it, I would say this. One, it probably is the most famous road movie of all time. Everybody knows it. So if you're making a road movie that is full of references, and both the book and this movie are full of references to all kinds of things, I do think that Wizard of Oz, yeah, is one that everyone's going to know, and one that Lynch has referenced before. Keep in mind, in Blue Velvet, he had a woman named Dorothy who wore red slippers, and at one point, she was supposed to sing over the rainbow, so I think he loved the movie. I think, like many people, it scared him as a kid, and he wanted to find a way to get it in here, and again... He, he likes dreamers. At one point, Laura Dern's going to literally be clicking her heels together in red stilettos. <laughs> and I never feel like she actually wants to go back home to her mom. So, again, to me, yeah, oh, maybe this is funny. Look at this weird, perverted Wizard of Oz. But is there anything deeper there? I don't think so. Well, we'll talk about it when we get to the end. Yeah, the Wizard of Oz stuff here is a bit distracting in the end. I wish that there was more to it. In the end, there's a lot I like about this movie, but I feel that was one indulgence that could have been edited out. It definitely could have been edited out, and it's definitely an indulgence, as this whole movie feels like a David Lynch does anything that he wants kind of experience. But I do feel like there is some kind of thematic payoff at the end. When we get there, I'll, I'll try to make the case, I guess. But there's other references, too. I mean... You mentioned in this opening attack here, it's it's not how the screenplay began. It, it actually, he had originally planned to kind of do what he did with Blue Velvet. He was going to have a montage in which we see everyday violence. That it would actually begin with a guy on a motorcycle riding through a like crosswalk with children and swerving and having a terrible accident. And then we would see those kids smash in a hornet's nest and we would see dogs attacking one another. He would do kind of that poetry that he did to introduce Blue Velvet. But I think it would be a mistake. That might have looked cool, and I certainly love that opening of Blue Velvet, but I think it would be wrong to tie this movie too closely to Blue Velvet. It's a very different experience. The way they bring it in now, you're reminded of the violence. What, what I remembered about this movie was the way that Nick Cage bashed this poor man's brains in on the railing of a stairwell. Yeah, it definitely grabs my attention. Like, I didn't know it was going to get that violent that quickly. And when Nick Cage gets attacked and he's all, he is defending himself, like, he does go out of control here and, and beats the guy to a pulp. I wasn't sure if the guy was just hospitalized or killed, but he's going to go away from manslaughter, so he killed the guy. I love that mystery in this movie. The fact that this is going to be teased to us for quite a while. We're seeing them at the dance, and this guy comes out and says to Sailor, you tried to fuck Lula's mother in the bathroom, and you're like, okay, this is a Lynch movie, So I and especially coming off of Blue Velvet with its The Graduate Overtones, I'm like, okay, so Nick Cage is a scumbag. I'll go with that. And then when he beats him up and kills him, I'm like, he's definitely a scumbag. It's going to take us half an hour and several flashbacks before we realize he is the righteous one here, and it's Marietta who has arranged all of it. I like that reveal. I didn't remember any of this from seeing this 25 years ago. So it was fun. Would you have liked it if they held back longer? Because that was the plan. I actually feel like they tell you pretty quickly what happened. That we find out very within, yeah, like you said, 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. We know that Sailor never cheated on Lula and that it was all Marietta's 
conniving, that she was basically humiliated that he rejected her, and yeah, probably threatened that he knew things about Santos and the mob operation that she was tangentially involved in. But they actually planned to not show this scene, this opening scene, until the climax of the film. That it would actually begin with him just calling from prison. The next scene of just him getting out of prison. We don't know what he did. And slowly over time, we keep going back and we learn more and more about what happened this night and why he went to jail. I wouldn't like that. I like, first of all, this is a grabber opening. No pun intended for how he grabs that guy and beats him. But it really got me into the movie, the violence, his point. You know, when he's leaning against the wall and does that point, he's almost like he's practicing the penance stare he'll bring back for Ghost Rider with that. I love that pose. Well, it's Elvis, right? I mean, it's total Elvis. Yeah, but the look on his face is not Elvis. That violent, bloody look. And I wouldn't have wanted them to play this mystery out that much longer either, a lot goes on in this film. There's a lot of weird tangents and things. I think it's good that when they leave Cape Fear, we leave the Cape Fear subplots behind. If they started with him just getting out of jail, I don't know that I would have been as interested in this mystery as the way they finally ended up telling it in the editing room. Yeah, I do like the feeling that you know Sailor is dangerous. There's going to be a scene later on in a bar. I'm sure we'll talk about it, a very odd scene. I am wondering throughout the film, oh, when is he going to lose it and, like, take someone out? Again, I'm thinking this is Lynch's natural-born killers, mm -hmm. and he's going to go crazy at some point because of this opening scene. It does create a tension throughout. Natural-born killers is certainly what I went to for most of this watching. I was like, it just really felt with two people on the run being chased by criminals, but they were criminals themselves breaking parole, and... I think Natural Born Killers is a very sweet love story, and I think we have that here. So I think there's a lot of similarities. The question is, did Tarantino find any inspiration in it? I mean, that script I don't think existed yet, and so we don't know. But True Romance, Natural Born Killers, this did kick off a whole trend of noir and road movies. I mean, I would throw... Thelma and Louise and My Own Private Idaho. There were a lot of like trippy road trip movies, cool, arty, indie films. This was at the forefront of that, that Lynch was there first. I wouldn't say he did it best, but he was here first. And yeah, I agree with you. You think by opening this way that this is the story about a brutal killer, that they're going to be Bonnie and Clyde. But that's, that's misleading. They aren't. And I think it is weird in neither the book nor the movie, in any of the eight books, do we ever learn how they met or why they're in love. Don't you think that's strange? No, I actually don't. I get that they're passionately in love. When the movie starts, she's 18. But why? I mean, doesn't he need to do something to impress her? I mean... Have you seen his snakeskin coat? I think that's all it needs. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like it's kind of on that level. Like, she's young. She's just getting into adulthood. Here's this cool guy that's, like, beating people up, wearing a snakeskin coat, really into Elvis. Like, yeah, it, it's not a mature love. It, it, it's a wild, crazy love. Young. One thing we're going to learn about Lula, certainly if they had some of the scenes restored the way that it played in the book and the way that it might have played in a longer version, is that she really doesn't have any limits. She has trouble saying no to anyone. And that, you know, we're going to see in many times in her life. She says she was raped at the age of 13 by Uncle Pooch. And then later, it's implied that she had an abortion. She was pregnant at 16. 
I don't think it's clear in this cut, but that was from her cousin Dell, played by Crispin Glover. He's the one that impregnated her. I thought it was Uncle Pooch's baby. Yeah, that's how they would probably like you to think of it, that it was a rape that turned into a pregnancy. But no, she just, her cousin started messing around with her. And in both cases, she just kind of went along with it. I'm going to read a line of dialogue that they filmed that they could have included about Uncle Pooch. The line goes... I mean, he raped me and all, but I guess there are different kinds of rape. I didn't exactly want him to do it, but I suppose once it started, it didn't seem like all that terrible. It was over pretty quick, and after Uncle Pooch just stood there, pulled up his trousers, he left me there. I stayed in bed until I heard him drive off, and then I went back to the kitchen and finished making my sandwich. And I think we're going to even see that at the end with Bobby Peru. I mean, I feel like it is her journey to learn how to say no to these lowlifes and these inappropriate encounters that happen. And so I can't believe that she's so in love with Sailor. He just might have been the guy that week that just didn't go away. You know, I, I feel like when I look at her in that respect, it's hard for me to see that, yeah, she's in love. See, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up that line because... I had a real problem with what happens with Bobby Peru. And again, we'll talk about that later. But if this stuff was here in her backstory when she's telling all that, it would have explained what the fuck was happening in that scene. I was confused. Yeah, I think that's the best scene in the movie, but we'll get there. Yeah, I agree. Because with, you know, look, rape is a thing that happens. It's a serious topic that could be explored in film. This feels like such like a farcical road trip fairy tale. I'm wondering why is that in there when it's such a dark, you know, blue velvet type moment? If, if it was portrayed the way you read it, so it developed this character, I, I would have understood it more. Like, I don't understand why Christmas Dell is in this film. You're saying she was raped by him as well. Like, it feels a weird aside in this final cut. I did wonder why do they keep going back to that rape? I, I, I feel like, yeah, if there's a purpose to that, go ahead and explore that. I do feel that's a failing of the film because it feels, again, to me like such a comedy almost that I'm wondering why there is this stuff in here. Yeah, I feel like her character is underserved by the way that they cut this movie and, and the way they've filmed it. It should be said, the way they filmed this flashback, she's bleeding from the nose. She's clearly been assaulted. It's not consensual in any way. She's been violated and her mother comes home and runs the guy off and then it's implied that she has him killed three months later none of that by the way is in the book and i'll give this movie one major credit though i avoided voicing too many personal thoughts on laura dern last show because you know irrelevant neither here nor there what i think of her but this movie did something i never thought possible it made laura dern sexy I just didn't think that could happen. Yeah, I thought she was just a botanist in Jurassic Park. I had no idea her connection to Lynch. Yeah, I didn't know her connection to Lynch. I didn't know her connection to... I knew she was Bruce Dern's daughter, but I didn't know she was Diane Ladd's daughter. But most of all, she's always kind of looked a little dowdy, and she played that role in Blue Velvet. We talked about her age in Blue Velvet. She was 18. I'm like, damn, she grew up and nice she's i mean they really make her look good they play down the jaw she does a lot of nudity i'm like this is not the laura dern i've seen in any other laura dern performance yeah it's not what was expected of her for sure that people were asking lynch why are you casting her for this i get that you like her and this movie is practically a blue velvet reunion the composer the editor the cameraman two of the principal actors, the production designer, everyone came back. It was such a good experience making Blue Velvet. 
everyone wanted to do it again. But you wouldn't think that Laura Dern was right to play this character until you realize how innocent and good that she is. Yes, she is libidinous. She has sex. But I don't see that she's that much different from Sandy in the end. She's Marilyn Monroe, you know. Her arm is constantly glued behind the back of her head, and she's in that classic Marilyn pose, and she's just kind of, she's striking a pose. She is playing a, a caricature, just as Nick Cage is playing a character of Elvis. But I just never expected her to be able to ooze sex. Even when she's clothed, she just oozes sexiness. I'd never seen that. And you say a lot of people came back from Blue Velvet. I think that Lynch works like a theater guy. You know, he just keeps bringing the same people back. I mean, look at who's here from Twin Peaks. You said he brought the composer back, but he and Battle Lamenti have kind of worked together for a good decade after Blue Velvet. I mean, their their collaboration wasn't just here. He did Twin Peaks. And from Twin Peaks, we have what? Cheryl Lee, Sherilyn Finn, Jack Nance, who's been with them since the beginning. Some of that has to do with availability. I mean, keep in mind, they were shooting the first season of Twin Peaks while Lynch was doing this. And so, like, we need somebody for this. I mean, he'd have these spontaneous moments of inspiration. Get Cheryl on the line. We'll have her come down and do this. It'll be great. We're going to haul you up on a crane. You're going to be the good witch. You know, like, <laughs> there was a lot of sudden, let's do it this way. Stuff that was not in the book and not in the script. And I think that, yes, if it does feel like there's a lot of crossover with Peaks, at least in terms of casting, it's because those people, well, they wanted to please their boss, right? And so... Who wouldn't turn down a, an opportunity to be in a David Lynch movie? They wouldn't have known at this time that the show would have been a hit. It looked like the kind of thing that would be canceled very quickly. They might not even get all eight episodes out there. But you definitely want to do the movie because everyone's going to see that. I think the reverse was true. I think Twin Peaks had the legs out of here. Well, certainly, yes. Twin, but it, no one would have expected that looking at the two. Now, I want to give Lynch some credit for the visual style here, too. I think this movie looks good, especially in these opening scenes. There's so much use of color and sound. When they go to that rock club, first of all, it's music I never expected to hear in a Lynch film. I love that because they're like, Laura Dern's painting her toes and Nick Cage keeps going, hey, you ready to go dancing? Let's go dancing, Peanut. And when you get to the club, speed metal. Yeah, I just, it almost sounded like a parody of metal. It was so just repetitive and thrashing power mad it's a real band that not one that lynch made lynch heard him and brought him in and that's actually them doing backup when cage switches from speed metal to elvis <laughs> i'll take power mad over a fast track or whoever was in trick-or-treat any day <laughs> fast away no give me fast way fast away that's it <laughs> but i love the strobe light dancing effect here that was just so cool i know he uses a little bit of that in some of the twin Peaks scary scenes too but here with the dancing so surreal, so awesome. I'm really grooving to the vibe of this movie. And also in this scene, I want to point out another case where Lula is not saying no. A man comes and gets up on her, and she could have told him to get away, but she makes Sailor be the one to have to call him to the carpet and smack him around a bit. And again, this is a conflict that does not have a resolution in this movie, but it should have. If they were thinking of these as characters that are going to grow and change, they would have. Yeah, no, these characters do not change in this film. <laughs> they don't. And it is a big flaw of this movie that essentially we don't know how they came to be. We don't see them become anything else. I think the only thing that they learn is that they don't have to go to Oz 
to live their dreams. But by and large, yeah, you better hope you like these caricatures because they're not going to do anything other than what they're doing here in the beginning. And I'm guessing, look, this is Lynch, so I'm trying not to take things literally. Like, is this how they're interpreting this moment in the club when Nick Cage breaks out into singing Love Me and it it goes into this whole Elvis slow motif and, like, everyone at the club is just standing around. Like, you get that can, oh, with the women in the background as he sings. Like, I don't know if this is supposed to just be expressing an emotion. If (laughs) Did Power Mad? I mean, it's certainly stepping out of the bounds of reality. I mean, I've never been in a situation where everyone stops what they're doing so that I can karaoke. I mean, that's obviously it plays as fantasy to this couple. It seemed like he was Fonzie, you know, he could just like punch a jukebox and make it start playing the exact song he wants. And the way all the girls swoon to him and the horribly overdubbed screaming. It's an Elvis response. It's how Elvis was received when he performed. And I don't know where the Elvis thing came from. I mean, I think it was a little bit Cage and a little bit Lynch. It's certainly not in the book, but it's a good reference point. This movie is filled with American iconography and certainly Wizard of Oz, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley. These are very famous people that everyone knows and most people love. And so that wins you over. You don't have to like these characters because you like what they represent. And I do think the movie uses that a lot. I also think that, yeah, Lynch is showing lust and passion in a way that he never has before. Sex is hot. It's not gross. It's not disgusting. It's not masochistic and and sick and diseased. It's colors of the rainbow. He literally got a device and wanted each sex scene to have a different shade. Sometimes it's red, green, yellow, but they're working that Wizard of Oz thing even in the sex scenes. It is high energy sex. It is sexy. It is harsh at times. It's really in your face. I could see where Michael Medved might not like this movie. I'm still confused on (laughs) Ebert, but... There is a sweetness to it, though. Yes, it's very passionate, but like they're they're after sex talk, which is like, I swear that, you know, Dick is talking to me up in there. And like, I don't know, there, there's something very sweet and passionate. And, and again, I like seeing this kind of relationship where, yes, they're rebels and they're young and they're crazy, but it's positive. And a lot of times in movies, it starts off that way and then they start blowing off people's head and you go, oh, maybe that's not a great way of life. But this is a positive portrayal here and I do like it. Yeah, and the evil is coming from one obvious place. It's Marietta, who is demonized here. This character on the page was simply an overprotective mother. Yeah, literally she's going to be like red like the devil at one point. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I think that's her Wicked Witch of the West makeup, red instead of green, right? Yep. That was Diane Ladd's improvisation. She came up with that. You, You look at that and you think, oh, that's total Lynch. But no, 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 no. She was the one that was like, I'm just going to freak out with my lipstick, David, and you're going to film it. So what you're telling me is Lynch is a mental illness that's contagious to those around him. I would phrase it differently, but I think I'm agreeing with you. (laughs) I think that actors like to work with Lynch because he is very open to them doing what they feel they want to do. And if she felt like her character needed to smear makeup all over her face and and really vamp it up, he was not going to tell her to dial it down. As someone that likes things to be played a little bit closer to Earth, I wish that he did, though. I'm going to say I do feel like this movie is way over the top, and after a while, it's very exhausting. Yeah, this movie is unhinged. It is 
all over the place. Again, you get weird asides with stories about Crispin Glover and cockroaches in his underwear. I don't know what that has to do. I never got the sense that he had raped Lula as well. It wasn't rape. I just wanted to clarify it was consensual pregnancy. I think you do get the impression at one point we see her in a chair. We see something get thrown away that looks like a fetus. You do understand that she had a pregnancy that was aborted. Yes, I got that definitely when we see the blood in the tube and whatnot. But no, in this cut of the movie, there's no reason to think Crispin Glover has any real interaction with any other characters. But I wish to God, I I know it's not in this retrospective, but could Lynch and Crispin please just go (laughs) make a film together? Because I like both of their weirdness. And I feel Glover is in this movie far too little, and I love his every minute on screen. I mean, I've seen this man perform live. I've seen him give readings of his books. I've seen the movies he's made, and I want more. I think you get something more bizarre than Eraserhead if the two of them made something. (laughs) Yeah, strange you are so down on Eraserhead, but what is it you're okay with? I mean, that movie is... I felt like that was a fanboy movie. I feel like Crispin probably was awestruck to be working with David Lynch and was like, this is the man I want to be when I become a filmmaker. I do feel like his films try to channel the craziest moments of David Lynch and extend them to feature length. Let me just say I I liked It Is Fine, Everything Is Fine more than What Is It. I'll I'll agree with that. Uh, What Is It was a little too eraser head for me. And in fact, he knows this. He showed that on the second night of his two-night engagement because he's like, if people see that movie first, they usually don't come back for night two. (laughs) I don't think the other one is that commercial, but hey, whatever. (laughs) Crispin Glover is... Yeah, I mean, boy, at one time he seemed like he was going to be the nerdy sidekick. You know, he could be on a sitcom or something like that. But he just chose a different path. And I think this was one of those films that showed him he should stick with indie movies and crazy parts where, yeah, he gets to stick cockroaches up his butt and what have you. The the point of having the character in the novel was to say that she had slept with her cousin and had yet again agreed to do something that she knew that she shouldn't. The idea that he's been turned into a Christmas-loving alien conspiracy <laughs> theorist, all of that was, I think, stuff that the actor and the director came up with. It isn't in the book. I love whatever he's doing with the rulers. I have no idea what it is. I don't care. It's awesome. There is a little bit more of him in those cut scenes. I mentioned the 72 minutes of extra scenes. Later down the road, they stop into a gas station. If you remember, when she's talking about Dell, she says that he disappeared. Nobody knew where he went. They never see that he's there, but he's working in a gas station, still being freaky. You know, you're asking why I'm grooving with this instead of Eraserhead. But again, the extremism of every character on screen. I mean, when Lula asks Sailor when he started smoking, I was four, right after my mom died of lung cancer. It's like, what the fuck? There's just, and you know what? I don't think he's lying. I just think that's how the characters in this movie are. Everything is cranked to 11. You're going to go with it or you don't. I'm really going with it. Again, it goes back to my main complaint about that first film. No hook. Here, there's a big hook. They got me with that mystery of was Sailor trying to fuck Lula's mom? And then the whole rest of it just takes me for a ride, a violent, carnal ride. 
They just suddenly start going on the road, though. Don't you think it's a strange transition? I mean, I'll, I'll just say it again. I think I've already said it a couple times. I think this movie is poorly cut. I think that, it's, that you could make the argument that the way that it zigs and zags is expressionistic. Maybe it's fun for you that it's hard to follow. But I think they do a very poor job of explaining why they even jump on the road to begin with and what danger they feel like they're in. Yeah, I didn't think that was a mystery. They want to get away from Lula's mom. She's a bitch. I just felt like we got to break parole and get out of here. Yeah. Sailor says he has a bad feeling. I, you know, people are looking in crystal balls. I didn't have any trouble really following the flow of the movie. I liked the editing. Yeah, I, I felt like that motivation, I didn't need a whole lot of explanation that, yeah, they they want to get away from this crazy mom. And and I do like that I finally kind of start starting to see what the plot is here. Okay, we're going to get hitmen. They're going to come after them. Oh, okay, I'm finally getting what this crazy movie is going to be about, what the crux of this is. Well, it's worth pointing out one of those guys is just a private eye. And I do feel like someone that is definitely given a disservice is... Harry Dean Stanton in this movie. A very likable character. Many of the scenes that ended up on the cutting room floor are his scenes in New Orleans, trying to find them. I don't know if it's clear in this version that he's not very interested in capturing the kids. But in cut scenes, when they get to New Orleans, he even sees them and lets them get away. He thinks Marietta is ridiculous, and all he's really trying to do is pacify her so that he can be closer to her and maybe eventually marry her. Yeah, this is where I'll agree with you, Stuart, where the editing starts bothering me. Like, when you get Johnny and then Santos, like, all of a sudden you're getting all these characters thrown in. I'm like, well, Johnny's in New Orleans. He's found them. I mean, I, I gotta figure you're riding around in this, this Cadillac and a snakeskin coat. Can't be that hard to find. Why is he taking so long? He's supposed to be able to find anyone. What, what is going on here? So I do feel like things start to unravel because they maybe they had to cut this down to two hours. Maybe it's how it's written. I'm not sure. But I do feel like the storytelling starts getting weaker when I'm expecting it to get stronger. I'll agree. I felt like some of the connections were muddy. I found it hard to get that Marietta was married, killed her husband because she was sleeping with Santos, but then also had this Johnny on the side. I don't know when they got together, if it was after her husband died, how she got involved with a private eye. So all of this, I didn't blame it on editing so much as storytelling. But if you're telling me there's more that explained this and fleshed it out, then yes, this is a sacrifice to meet the running length that they delivered. And I feel like Harry Dean Stanton's character is the most likable one in this film he is the only one that is not like crazed and ridiculous like he just wants to find him and appease marietta and just maybe calm her down i think that's why i like him so much is that she is so over the top and all he is trying to do is just bring that down to a rational level and the more that he's just like playing it down it makes her crazier it makes her go to the mobster if he had said, yeah, I'll go kill Sailor, no problem, she probably would have been satisfied. But because he says, I'm not going to do that, and Sailor isn't a murderer, and you just need to calm down, she goes to a gangster that's always been sweet on her. And this is all of this convolutions. If you have a hard time 
understanding it or, or why it's here is because it's ridiculous. This is just stuff that David Lynch made up that's not in the book. I mean, I, I'm going to argue that you could totally cut Johnny out of this film. Like, he's going to get it from some voodoo hitman or something. Like, ultimately, I don't even know what role Johnny plays. We're going to go to Santos, who's not going to do the hit. He's going to give silver dollars to Mr. Reindeer, who's going to hire hitmen. Like, I love Mr. Reindeer. Well, because he's got a bunch of topless women. Of course you do. Yeah, it's like One-Eyed Jacks. No, it's not just topless women. I could go to a strip club if I wanted that. I love that he's like taking orders and has topless women while he's taking a shit. I mean, he and the grin on his face the whole time. He's a fun character. Yeah, New Orleans is a mess and it shouldn't be. When I look at the edited scenes, it's where I really love Johnny and I really see him as a quiet hero in all of this and, and that it's sad the way that they get him. He spends a lot of time being stalked by these three characters in the cutscenes. And we have Reggie and Drop Shadow and then Grace Zabriskie, Laura Palmer's mom. What she's doing here as Perdita Durango's sister, Juana, is its own thing. With the unibrow? Yeah. Yeah, I was shocked. I'm like, is that Laura Palmer's mom? What is she doing here? What is a voodoo ritual doing here other than we're in New Orleans and I guess that's the home of voodoo? But the whole thing felt like a bit of a put on to me and then then they blow johnny's head off and i'm like okay and it goes nowhere yeah it was trimmed down and even i didn't see what test audiences fled from apparently when they screened this movie early the big walkouts came during this scene and it's because i think that after johnny dies they start to have sex in his innards and in his remains and i think that was just that was a step once removed and you know what on one hand you don't need it but on the other hand what is this movie but going over the top i mean i why not do it if you're going to do big you don't do anything smaller than enormous right offensive be as grotesque as possible so maybe it should be here all i would say is that if you're going to do all this hitman stuff and i'm not sure that they needed to you could have streamlined it to one or two characters that we have to go from santos to reindeer to three hitmen to kill one guy who's not our main character feels like way too much complications yeah and i'm wondering why are these hitmen taking so long to find sailor in new orleans again he's very uh easy to pick out from a crowd it, it was just something in the back of my mind knowing oh, okay this is how you know a hitman should be working he should be very easy to spot but no they're they never know that people are after him i think in new orleans they just decide to finally leave and move on to texas the whole new orleans trip seemed a bit of a side trip for them i thought they'd stay there more i mean the big easy is a cinematic location that's used in a lot of movies i thought that they might really play up for that but no, they decide to move on to Big Tuna, Texas, and that is one weird name for a town. <laughs> Fictional, of course. There is no Big Tuna, Texas. I, I did look it up, yes. <laughs> there were other things along the way, and, and many of it could have been cut. I mean, things that were in the book that are just weirdness. I, I don't think that there's a point. There were little people. There were munchkins, if you... If you were, if you wanted more Wizard of Oz, there was a random hitchhiker with puppies and everyone had a speech, you know, and some people still remain like Crispin Glover or the Elephant Man's abuser is here. They they make his voice go up like helium and he has 
a little bit talking about how he hates pigeons, that was like a five-minute monologue. So I feel like you're getting a sense of weirdness, but they're not lingering in the way that a Tarantino would, where it's all about the dialogue and you give them the floor so that they can deliver it. Here, they undercut everything by saying, all right, here's your big moment. Eh, never mind, we're going to move on. And, <laughs> and that is my frustration in the middle of this movie. One of my favorite scenes, though, does come just after they leave New Orleans. Lula's driving, and she's got the radio on, and it's all about sex with corpses and murders and death. <laughs> and she literally like starts going crazy. He's like, I need music, I need music. And then, of course, I don't know if it's Power Mad again, it but is. that death metal comes on, and they start dancing. Like Again, that tells me about her innocence. She doesn't want to focus on that ugly side of the world that Lynch often spends a lot of time in with, again, like Blue Velvet. She wants to just rock out and have fun and it's just a it's a little character moment that i really like with her i like that too and i gotta give some serious props to nick cage's cartwheel out of the convertible <laughs> that is one hell of a move and i mean there's no way that was a stunt man one take they did it yeah that was but it really i agree that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie on a road trip you want to feel like every stop is important in some way maybe it's not important into how they reach their final destination but it has an influence it says something about the culture or or reflects back on the characters and who they are I don't feel like we get that in this cut of the movie. I feel like many times it's strangeness just to be strange. And that was one of the one moments where I felt like, oh, yes, they're responding to an America that normalizes. That, that These are news reports, what you're talking about. Talk radio. That they're with a straight face reading all of the, these horrible, obscene things. And these are kids that just want to have fun. They don't want to process that. And so they have a little piece of heaven here by rocking out to their speed metal and doing some kind of kung fu dancing in a cornfield. It's it's a great moment. I like how the music changes and becomes a classical piece, too, and becomes very romantic again, whereas it starts with, yeah, that speed metal. And so is this the movie that gave Chris Isaacs his career? I mean, we're going to hear one of my favorite songs, um, Wicked Game in this, and I thought that song was made famous because of its really good music video, but was it this movie? Not made by Lynch, by the way. <laughs> Herb Ritz. He always makes music videos where the stars are clutching themselves on a beach. Madonna's Cherish and Janet Jackson's Love Will Never Do Without You, and yes, that famously had a uh, very uh, buxom model and Chris Isaac rubbing against each other. You know, it's the steel guitar, right? It's the guitar in that that's just so moody and transporting. It's only here in an instrumental and because that's really the hook of the song. And it is. It's, it's the hit single. You don't usually think of David Lynch movies having a pop song. But uh, yeah, Chris Isaac is a little bit like Roy Orbison. He works in that way, in the way that Roy Orbison's In Dreams does. And you know, it leads into one of the more famous stops on this highway as well, where they come across a car accident and Sherilyn Finn is basically a zombie. She's the walking dead. She doesn't know that she's dead. She's looking for her purse and her comb and wondering what this sticky stuff in her head is. And of course, she has a fatal car injury that will take her out in a few minutes later. 
I think she killed herself. Her finger, like, goes into her skull. I think she's, like, itching her brain, and that's what killed her. Well, she's trying to find out that what the sticky stuff is in her hair. Blood. I mean, th- I do think this is another effective scene. I guess it's there to foreshadow what is to come for Sailor and Lula as they get into Big Tuna. But, yeah, th- just watching this character walk around not knowing that like her brains are hanging out and she's covered in blood you know i I don't think this movie usually works when it goes real dark but this is a moment where it does yeah agreed completely i like it as mood setting it comes right about halfway through the movie and their trip thus far has been romantic wild and successful and this is the harbinger of what's to come yeah, they're running out of money, and they, I don't think they ever had much money, and he's going to end up robbing a feed store for, I think, what, two grand, $2,500 maybe, is what he's hoping to get him to L.A. You're going to need a lot more than that. I'll just leave it at that. But that's the point that I think Lynch is trying to make, is that these people are very naive. They are living with the idea that they're going to meet the big wizard down the road, that there is somebody that can make their dreams come true, and they don't believe they can do that where they live. I didn't realize until this viewing that this is not an accident that they end up here, that Sailor didn't like break down the car or just say, we can't go any further. He came to Big Tuna on purpose because... He was a driver for Santos, and he knows Perdita Durango, who lives in Big Tuna. Yeah, Isabella Rosalini, an Italian model playing somebody with a Hispanic name. Oh, come on. This is not the first time an Italian has played a Latin. I mean, have you seen Scarface? Say hello to my little friend. I'm just saying that the Italian accent is nothing like the Hispanic accent. Uh, look, if Italians could play crying Native Americans, they, they could play Perita Durango. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, it's Lynch's world. You can be whatever you want. This was her conception. She wanted her to look like Frida Kahlo. That's why the whole unibrow thing came out, and I guess that's why Grace Zabriskie used it as well here but she does look both alluring and scary i i wish they used more of perdita i do feel like we're gonna get a whole movie of her next week but i feel like she probably could have done more here in this climax she could have been a bigger part of it there was a cut scene where we see her beat up bobby peru Ooh, i would have liked to have seen that i would have liked to have seen more of her i know And we're going to talk about this next week, but I know that you've put on the schedule a movie called Perdita Durango. If I didn't have a sensitivity to that name because I know there's a movie coming, I don't think I would have paid much attention to Isabella Rosalini at all. Yeah, or known that she was the director's fiance. Yeah, I expected more because it was a returning actress from Blue Velvet. I mean, a starring actress from Blue Velvet. And here it's just a bit role. Yeah, she is the killer that is hired to kill Sailor, though. That's the important thing. We saw with Reindeer, he has a whole complicated message system where you drop silver dollars in his mail slot. And one of them went to those trio of killers in New Orleans to take out Johnny. The other one we will see, I think we see it in this cut, that that Bobby Peru has it. it, it's at her house, and that they're conspiring to kill Sailor during a robbery of a feed store down the road. That it's, it's a nominal hit, but the real point is they want to collect on reindeer money. So just to jump ahead a little bit with Bobby. So he was in like, 
I know he goes to Perdita and says, hey, do you have any hits? And she shows that silver dollar. Was she supposed to hire him? Was he supposed to be on it? Like, that did confuse me. I, I felt like Bobby, he lives in Big Tuna, that this was all just happenstance, that, like, he's going to end up being the one trying to take out Sailor. I can't tell you because the book didn't have a Mr. Reindeer. These were just people that they bumbled into when they wound up in Big Tuna. There was none of this orchestration about trying to do an assassination on Sailor. That just, that was all coming from Lynch here. So I'm not sure that it is clear. I will say this much. Willem Dafoe's casting is probably the single greatest of this film. He is a vision of horror. I don't know that he is the worst thing that they encounter, but he looks like it. What did they do to his teeth? Are, did they shave those down for real? Are those cat? Like, <laughs> man, his teeth are so nasty here. No, those look like the hillbilly teeth you buy down at the corner store because he can't even close his mouth. But those things, I'm a teeth person. You know, there's leg guys, there's breast guys. I'm a teeth guy. And when I see nasty teeth like this. You wouldn't make out with them? Well, I'm just saying any nasty teeth like this really gives me the willies. Yeah. I don't know what role he plays. I mean, I get that he's the worst thing. He's referred to at one point as the Black Angel. And yet I feel like we also have Marietta and we have Santos and we have tons of other villains. But he is the one that I feel like does the best job of getting under these lovers' skin. Because they're stuck in this rundown motel trying to make the best of it. They don't have the money to move on. They have the vehicle. There's no reason why they physically can't go down the road. They have $40. They could certainly get out of Big Tuna if they made it a priority. But I think he kind of seduces him. And there were a lot of cut scenes about all the crazy people that they meet here in Big Tuna and job opportunities, what have you. But really, the only thing that's important in my mind is that they come face to face with the worst thing they find on the road. Bobby. Yeah. See, I like the scenes leading up to it. I don't know exactly why they're staying there for so long or how they're affording the hotel they're in. It's $12 a day. They say they have $40. Yeah, so they have enough to stay for three days only. And when they're out there having like that barbecue with their neighbors and Jack Nance comes out and talks about his dog and shamelessly drops a Toto reference and all of that's going on. And there's like a BBW porno being made <laughs> and all kinds of stuff. Texas style. Yeah, I didn't understand what that meant until... Everything's bigger in Texas. Yep, I figured that out <laughs> the, the hard way. <laughs> They basically, it came from a joke on set. They were passing around uh, the porn magazine Hippos, and David Lynch said, let's call some of these girls up. So they're here. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I've never heard of that magazine. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a subscriber, but I get what their market is, and I get that it fits right in with the aesthetic of let's just do some crazy-ass shit because we can't have... One scene go by without someone being over the top. You like this stuff? I actually feel like it's a distraction. I actually feel at this point irritated with the movie 
that we should be getting to something more dramatically substantial. Like I said, character stuff. That Sailor's going to have to atone for being Santos's driver. That Lula is finally going to have to create boundaries for herself or end up in another dire situation. She's already ended up pregnant again and debating about whether she wants to have that baby. Yeah, this movie made me really... It just hit home for me because I'd seen another movie a couple days before... If a woman vomits in a movie, it's always a baby. It's never the flu. It's always a baby. Just like the other rule is if someone coughs in a movie, they're going to die. They have something malignant. No one ever just <laughs> casually coughs in a movie. That cough is a sign of death. Yes, there are there are triggers. There are signs and codes in a movie. You're right about that. The vomit just tells you before. She didn't have to write it down for Sailor. We know what's going on with her. What's really funny, and that maybe I'm just weird, is... They have so much sex that like 20 minutes into the movie, I'm like, he doesn't seem like the type to use a condom. Aren't they worried about pregnancy? How are they going to support a child? And then it becomes a pregnancy subplot. Well, it, and apparently she's not the type to clean up her puke because she vomits in the middle of the rug and we get that scene with the flies all over it. I'm like, oh, he's doing the bug thing again from Blue Velvet. Like, this is evil. This is a town of evil. And this is the sign. No, it's just she doesn't clean up after herself, apparently. <laughs> I mean, it is a really run-down motel here. I mean... They're going to lose their deposit on that thing. <laughs> I want to point out, too, author Barry Gifford, who wrote Wild at Heart, his whole training for studying people was that he, he worked at hotels like this, that he grew up in them. And so it's kind of why his stories feel like they're just populated with weirdos that kind of come in for a chapter or two and then disappear that his whole style is that things are transient and and random and that he hasn't met a dozen machina that he doesn't like he just likes that things just kind of randomly happen and it's not because characters grow and change or take active choices he's very against classical storytelling and maybe it works for you or maybe it doesn't well it would work for me just viewing this film, I don't know how it is in the book, but it would work for me if this was just a weird, farcical take on a road trip where you meet a bunch of weird characters. The fact that I'm waiting for, like, almost this action thing because I know there's hitmen that are supposed to be out there. Sailor keeps revealing more and more about his past with Santos and that he's there the night that Lula's dad died. I'm, I'm waiting for some big reveal there. I feel like you never get that payoff. Like, cut out all the hitman and just have this be a mishap that goes down in Big Tuna. I feel like you have a much cleaner movie here. Yeah, I I agree with that because this second half feels almost like a sequel movie, a totally different thing. Yes, we still have Marietta hanging around in the background, basically just freaking out at home. The fact that Santos and reindeer and marietta really are all embodied here by peru we don't see any direct relations and finally when it's revealed peru's the hitman we never see the interactions between them it feels really disconnected well i think peru is just a porn director the hitman is perdita but because he's mixed up with her because she's a local and he's a local I think that he just sort of works his way into it. If there's if there's a scam or a way to make money, I see that that's what he's here to do. But I'm not sure that he's a killer by training. He just feels like he likes to push boundaries. And we certainly get that in my personal favorite scene, the one I think you wanted to talk about, Arnie, where he's come to use the head and ends up propositioning poor Lula. This scene almost turned me against Lula because... They've been so madly in love this entire time, right? And Bobby Peru 
is grotesque embodied, right? I mean, those teeth, the attitude. When he comes in, I get that like rapey vibe off of him. Everything about this scene says wrong to me. And then he goes and starts to violate her, and I'm feeling really bad that she's getting raped again. And then she gets into it. She comes. He's fingering her. She does this hand motion. They've, like, zoomed in on her hand so we know what her hand does when she comes. We've seen it, like, three or four times by now. We see she has an orgasm for Peru and says, fuck me, and then he teases her. And I'm turning against her. I'm now like, is it love? Or is she just really easy? And I don't think it is love. I think it is passion. And that these are very naive kids that believe that they, you know, are in love, but don't really know each other, don't haven't shared a life together. And yeah, it would make a whole lot more sense if you had seen that she got impregnated by a guy that had cockroaches in his underwear and <laughs> basically went along with her father's business partner taking her virginity i mean this character is underserved in this cut but i think that this is the culmination of that crisis for her in my reading of it because i hadn't read the book i didn't know that she is more complicit in those earlier assaults when she was a teenager my take was she went back to that victimized state where like she's almost paralyzed where you see her as a 13 year old you know with the bloody nose and just cringing in the bed i mean i i did just take her as going into a victimized state because i have no other way to read it in this movie but i i do it does sound like the book is much deeper i took it that way at first but then when she got into it you know when it comes to movies, I can be very puritanical. I know that doesn't sound like me, but cheating can be forgiven. But cheating in the middle of the most passionate love affair ever, where the two of you are on a road and planning to get married, to cheat in this state, I really had a moral issue with this. And I wish it had been more explained that she's just weak and doesn't say no. And that that had been a character evolution. Because the way it plays here... It really undercuts the relationship I was invested in between her and Sailor. Well, how about if they had a, had a previous scene on the road where they stopped in a club and Sailor started dancing with a woman and she got jealous? That was something they filmed and it it looks like he made he had the wandering eye first. And keep in mind he said one other thing early that really struck a chord with me. When she asked him after the nightclub why he didn't sing Love Me Tender, he said, I'm only going to sing that to my wife. I've never felt like he had all in for her for a long time. I took that line as saying, I'll sing it to you when we're married. That's how I read it. Mm, I didn't take it that way. I took it to mean you're not my wife. But if he'd been shown with a wandering eye, then this would be more forgivable because it could be seen as retaliation. But in the movie I watched, I didn't do all the research you did. I did not see those $200 cutscene disc. So... <laughs> I know what was presented to me, and that scene was very hard. When she's crying at the end of it, I can't tell if she's crying because she was violated or if she's crying because she realized she betrayed Sailor. I think it's the latter, honestly. I think that that's it, is that she realized that, yeah, she had been in some weird way seduced by evil. And they're both being seduced by evil. He no sooner finishes up here than goes and, and finds Sailor, gets him drunk, and talks him into this stupid plan. Robbing a feed store, that sounds like the road to riches. <laughs> hey, it's just a couple thousand bucks. That's all they need to get to California. And 
it, this is a weird turn because I felt for so long this has avoided being natural born killers that now we're going into yeah this shoot 'em up robbery scene. And I'm like, oh, this, and it seems very late in the movie to take this twist. Yeah, the notion of the way that it played in the book is that yeah, it, it's absurd. You're laughing at the naivete that anyone would think that this is a way out of big tuna poverty, but it isn't. In Lynch's film, it is, I'm luring you into my trap so that I can kill you and you can be collateral damage. And yeah, if I get away with $5,000, great. But the point is, I'm going to collect your head from reindeer. And I think Sailor is on to it. As soon as he sees that Perdita is the getaway driver, he's got to realize that this is about more than robbing a feed store. He didn't know that Bobby and Perdita knew each other and that she's coming along and that she's a known assassin that has worked for Santos. It means something. Yeah, the way he gets in the back seat and he's kind of like a sullen teenager. He knows something's wrong, but he just gets in the car and wordlessly goes anyway. I mean... He was about ready to walk away even before Perdita showed up. So the fact that he even goes along, that's just stupidity on his part. He should have walked away. Of course, they probably just would have shot him in the back at that moment. But Yeah, but uh, this is also another thing that I, I didn't remember everything about this movie. But one thing I always think about is the way that Defoe goes out here. And the difference is whether you see the brains disconnect from the skull or not. They, they throw some fog in to try and obscure it in the R-rated version. But in the unrated cut, you get in its full glory that after they're chasing each other out of this feed store, a local cop shoots Bobby a few times and he falls on the barrel of his shotgun and blows his own head off. It was accidental, right? This wasn't like a suicide thing. It's just the way he fell on that. Mm -hmm. And I definitely, I guess I got the unrated version because there were brains coming out of that. There was no fog. Oh, wow. I saw gun smoke in mine. I'd like to see the unrated version, but that wasn't nearly as disturbing to me as Bobby Peru with pantyhose over his head. His lips (laughs) peeled back, those dirty teeth, that really greasy mustache that's the most horrific thing on this scene by the time he blows his head off i'm taking it as a relief i just kept thinking of raising arizona you got a panty on his head (laughs) (laughs) it's a nick cage connection yes (laughs) and he's he immediately again when i say about not a bad egg he's not firing back at the cop he's not continuing to run as soon as he runs out and realizes it's over he is down on the ground he is giving up he is not resisting arrest This is not a bad guy. Whatever he did to Bobby Lemon at the beginning of this movie has never been recreated anywhere on this road trip. And I think it was an anomaly. I think he only did that to express how passionate he felt, at least at the time, about Lula. But that does change over the course of the prison sentence. And this is always, I think, a very strange conclusion. The original book ending is that when he gets out of jail, he doesn't stay with Lula. He leaves her. And David Lynch realized that ending wasn't working, so he he created a happier ending. And I feel this ending's appropriate. What I don't understand, who's this gang? Sailor walks away from Lula, and he's walking down the street, and the most racially diverse gang, like, surrounds (laughs) him. And are we supposed to know who this gang is, or is it just like, you're in a bad part of town? No, it's as random as anything else here, Jacob. Don't don't start asking too many questions now. Okay. 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 (laughs) 
I thought for sure that Marietta hired them too. And like, she just wasn't done trying to kill him because we see her just upset that Lula's going to see him again. I mean, they're replaying the beats of five years earlier. Yeah, there's no character change here. Lula's doing the exact same thing. No, I think there is a character thing. But the point is, and I think the difference is, if you think about The Wizard of Oz, is that all of that was a dream, right? She never went to Oz. That was the lady that was going to kill her dog. And honestly, we never know whether she killed Toto or not. The reason is she realizes she wants to be home. She stands her ground. And I think that what we see by seeing the beginning replay here at the end is that she doesn't have to run away. That it's not about going to some magical place. She just tells her mom, I'm going to rip your arms off if you don't leave me alone. And maybe that's all that it is. That, you know, when you're young, you feel like there's a magical place you can run to, like Oz. But uh, when you wake up, and I think she has, the only character arc that I can find for her is that she realizes her mother is easy to vanquish. You know, you throw her cocktail on the picture and it melts away. And Sailor learns in a very heavy-handed way to fight <laughs> yes. for your dreams. Yeah, when the good witch descends from the sky. Yeah, I'm like, oh, wow, they're really going for it here. I'm very curious, Arnie, because you have fought me throughout this Lynch retrospective saying, no, this ending is a happy ending. He's not being ironic at all. That the lady in the radiator, the mom floating in space for the elephant man, all of it to you has played as straight up serious. <laughs> You can't believe that Lynch is playing this serious. I can't tell because for those who aren't listening to Now Peaking, I think Cheryl Lee is one of the worst actresses to grace the big and small screen. And so when you bring her in in that lampshade gown, I don't know what she's doing here. I do believe that the two of them have finally come to terms with an adult relationship and that they are going off together or a unified family. I think the three, it is a happy ending. But it's an Elvis movie happy ending. I mean, this is not reality. It's not like they've returned. In Wizard of Oz, she woke up, she was back in Kansas. They're still in a crazy place. Yeah, they're in the middle of traffic and he's singing Love Me Tender. But I do feel like, like, yeah, Lynch, again, with Blue Velvet and, and Eraserhead, like, how happy is this ending really supposed to be? I do feel like this is his rom-com. Like, this for Lynch, this is as straight as he could get, maybe, when it comes to a rom-com. And, and it's just his weird way. I do feel it's sincere, though. I do feel like we're supposed to believe they're in love and that this sincere, it's not ironic despite witches and Elvis and all that. Now, the only happiness they're going to get is to live inside a daydream. And I think you can either celebrate that or just treat this movie as some kind of natural-born killer's ridicule about what America really is and, and what Americans try to make it. But what do we make of this film? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Wild at Heart? Jacob. This is what I struggled with because there's stuff I do like about it, but then it, it's so nonsensical at times. I feel with his more surreal stuff, Blue Velvet and Eraserhead, he, he's trying to get to some underlying emotion and, and, and different themes there. Here, it feels like Lynch, oh, I just want to do a comedy, but because I'm David Lynch, it's going to be wacky and weird. And I find that there's a lot of disconnect here. There's a lot of storylines that I feel could just be cut. Like, this is a long movie. It's over two hours, like two hours. 10 minutes it could have been much shorter and better for that but what 
makes this a recommend for me is that I like what he does with Sailor and Lula, that they are this rebellious couple, but that's portrayed as a wholesome thing, that, yes, they're in the margins of society, but they're not bad for it. it it's They don't have to make some change where Sailor takes a real job and, you know, like happens in a lot of movies where, oh, we learned our lesson, we're young and crazy and wild at heart, and now we got to conform to society. No, they're still crazy at the end and singing Elvis, and he's wearing his snakeskin jacket. So I think that's admirable. So I don't know if I'm going to go back and revisit this one a lot, just because, again, it's a mess of a movie, especially, I guess, because it had to get cut down from four hours. But there's enough here that I think you might be entertained. So, yeah, it's a mild recommend. Stuart. I didn't like it then. I still don't like this movie. And the sad part of it is David Lynch is the reason why I don't like this movie. I probably would like this movie if someone else adapted the book. John Waters. He would have made a fun, lively road trip movie. But this movie is leaden with needless vulgarity and depravity and just Lynch obsessiveness that really hurts the story. I really feel... Like, it is ill-served by him at the wheel. And that makes me sad, because I like Lynch. And I kind of like the book. I didn't love it, but it was it was fine as a wannabe Elmore Leonard. But I also believe that a good editor could just take what was filmed and make a movie that I would give a mild green arrow to. I do feel, by judging all of the footage that isn't in this movie, and reading the book, and and reading the screenplay, I do feel like there was a version of this that wouldn't be so convoluted and, yeah, just difficult to to get into the behind the wheel with. I mean, I just, truly, it's so erratic, I had trouble staying invested. And I feel like the only thing going for it was that it, it did do this first, but it certainly didn't do it best. I mean, what came later, uh, Tarantino, what have you, or before, when you look at Bonnie and Clyde or Badlands, this kicked off a trend, but this is not a great movie. I, I don't hate it. I, I want to be clear. I'm not dogging the movie. I'm disappointed that I don't like it, that this is my first red arrow of a David Lynch series. But it's not an embarrassment. I think what it is, is it reinforces something that I don't like to think about. And some of the strongest criticism against Lynch is that he just makes these pointless, cruel films that mock people with physical and mental handicapped. And I'm always saying, no, the weirdness matters. It means something in Eraserhead. It means something in Blue Velvet. But here, it is just sensationalism. I, I have to agree with the haters. While at heart is David Lynch taking a piss in your head. You're booing with Roger Ebert. Yep. Maybe that's too strong. I wouldn't give it the top prize, I can tell you that. I never thought this would happen. You are giving a not recommend to a Lynch movie that I'm recommending. That is really shocking to me. Just I thought anything I would like, you would certainly like. Here, I can't say I love this movie, but I certainly have a fun time watching it. I think Nick Cage gives a tremendous indulgent performance here. I've seen Nick Cage when this goes bad, but sometimes with Nick, this goes good. And this is one of those cases where, you know, he wasn't all that far away from Honeymoon in Vegas with the flying Elvises, but here indulging in his Elvis side, wearing his snakeskin jacket, and the dance moves he does, the craziness with Laura Dern, the two of them have remarkable chemistry that never had me questioning their love until Laura Dern's getting fingered by Bobby Peru. 
And if nothing else at all, Bobby Peru would make this movie something that I would say you have to see. I mean, Willem Dafoe is amazing in this movie. He's incredible. When I start to feel this movie's losing its way in Big Tuna and starting to stall, Willem Dafoe comes and just gives it an electric jolt that brings me right back in. From the mystery at the beginning to the... Comedy at the end with the dog taking the hand and running off with it while the old men at the feed store are trying to find the hand to get it reattached. I had fun watching this movie. It's a recommend. Wow. Yeah. I'm not totally surprised because I knew that it had a sensibility that you've celebrated in other films. I mean, you like gonzo filmmaking. And Jacob, I feel like that's also true. You've recommended some Nick Cage movies that I haven't been able to go with. But yeah, I think that, yeah, the problem is, is that it's just too much. Proudly. I mean, I don't think that it's embarrassed by that. Stuart, I don't know how far off we are because I did struggle like where I was going to go with this one. And personally, I don't know if I liked it a whole lot, but it is one I'd recommend. That's what it comes down to. We're asking if you could recommend it. Yeah. It sounded like what what you respected about it was something that I still struggled with. Like, to me, it did feel like they, they sold out. That the wild girl that once had an abortion now had settled down with a proper family and her one true love. And, you know, what's more American than Elvis Presley singing? I mean, I feel like it does in some weird way espouse a, a very conservative, either that or it's a mocking version of it. Again, I can never tell with Lynch whether he loves Americana or ridicules it or both. I think it's an ironic love. I think he does love it, but understands how cheesy it is. Yeah, I think you're right. Like Sailor Snake's skin jacket, that's for some reason a symbol of his individuality. Like, that's kind of silly, but yeah, I go with that. Like, in an ironic way, like, and so I go with it that this is kind of a subversion of the American dream. Well, if you like that, I got seven more books to sell you over at Books and Nachos. I am just going to do one podcast. I am not going to break this out into eight different individual book reviews, but I did read all of Barry Gifford's Wholesaler and Lula epic, and it is an epic, and I will be able to condense all of that into eh, not too long a podcast. So if you're curious to know my thoughts on what happens to Sailor and Lula after this movie ends, you can join me over there in the next week. Does it end like this movie ends with them and their child running off together? No, it ends right before this movie ends with Sailor saying, you know what, I'm going to go back to the train depot. And then they get together in the third book. You mean there's a whole book in between? Yeah, and it's the movie we're reviewing next week, Perdita Durango. I don't know anything about this movie. I've looked at the cast. It's Javier Bardem before he was famous. This is the late 90s, Rosie Perez. What are you making me watch, Stuart? I don't have a good feeling about this. James Gandolfini. There's a lot of talent connected to this. There's a lot of to-be-famous behind the scenes and in front of the camera. It's a curiosity. I've never seen it, and I'm betting most people, even ones that like Wild at Heart, had no idea that there was this spin-off, sequel, whatever you want to call it. But it's got an interesting story, and I am looking forward to seeing if it's maybe even a little bit better. My complaint here was that I didn't want Lynch to direct Barry Gifford, and I guess I'm going to get my wish granted. The, the good witch is coming down, I hope. Either that or Bobby Peru, and I'll be watching whatever this spinoff is made by Alex de la Iglesias next week. And in the meantime, if you wanted some real Lynch... 
please join us over at Now Peaking because we have solved the mystery of who killed Laura Palmer and there's still so much more to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> there's the rest of season two. And I promise that we'll make the show feel faster than it does watching it. <laughs> You know, I I don't know. Maybe I'm just more forgiving of when it goes astray. But even at its worst, I always liked Twin Peaks and I enjoy certainly talking about it. So, yes, it is not as uh, focused, I would say, now that we know who did it and they're out of the picture. But Wyndham Earl is a pretty fearsome character and you got to love Cooper. So he is the thread that holds it together. And we'll get there next week, not this week. <laughs> Because Wyndham takes his time. But that's all over at NowPeakingPodcast.com. Whether or not I like specific episodes, I love Twin Peaks and I'm loving talking about it with you two guys. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, don't say a word about this to my mom, please. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's David Lynch Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. I also want to thank you, fellas. You've taught me a valuable lesson in life. Now that you've heard this movie review, head to NowPeakingPodcast.com to hear Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob review every episode of the Twin Peaks TV series. What was that all about? I don't know. And go to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews of all the Twin Peaks-related books and audiobooks. Let's go dance some peanut. Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, the James Bond films, and more. That's wrong. It's from Batman. Fuck Batman. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. Yeah, Bobby here is the most exciting item to hit big tuna since the 86 Cyclone sheared the roof off the high school. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. One thing about surviving a big tuna, you gotta have an active sense of humor. <laughs> I'd go the far end of the world for you, baby. You know I would. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Drop a silver dollar through my mail slot. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website. Nowplayingpodcast.com. That kind of money get us a long way down the yellow brick road. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. You make the future so simple and nice. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. 
You are so aware of what goes on with me. I mean, you pay attention. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. See? I knew you had it under control. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. You think of the weirdest damn things to say sometimes, Pam. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Who could find an honest man in Washington? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. All I know for sure is there's more than a few bad ideas running around loose out there. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I knew I had an important lesson to learn that day. Had enough, asshole? Yes, I have. Don't you ever call here again. <laughs> Stuart in LA. This is Jacob. And did I ever tell you that this year podcast where we zip? Did I ever tell you? Fuck. <laughs> and did I ever tell you this here podcast represents a symbol of my individuality, my personal, and my belief in personal freedom? So you gotta do that again. Okay. Let me try <laughs> one more time. And did I ever tell you that... <laughs> so do I. <laughs> that, that was a badass coat. And it's something Elvis would wear, so it fits this movie so well. <laughs> It will surprise you none to know that that came from Nicholas's that came from Nicholas Cage's personal wardrobe. I'll say it one more time. It will surprise you none to know that that came from. It'll surprise you none. Well, if I can't say Nicholas Cage, this is going to be a long night. <laughs> Just go Nick. <laughs> but clearly, Arnie is correct. There is a quality drop that is quite measurable once they move past the Laura Dern, Laura Dern, the Laura Palmer <laughs> storyline. And, uh... <laughs> well, Sailor used to be a driver for Santos and was outside the house the night Luna's dad burned up. You know it's Lula, right? No. I think you're, you're saying Luna, aren't you? Yep, I will start over. Lula, okay. yeah. And do, and do it in your Elvis impersonation. I don't have an Elvis impersonation. <laughs> I know, neither do I. I was like trying to like get one to do my intro, and I couldn't do it. I'm like, uh huh. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much is not a good way to start a plot summary. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <laughs> that's how mine sounded. That's why I didn't do it. <laughs> No, it's not.
not just topless women. I could go to a strip club if I wanted that. I love that he's like taking orders and has topless women while he's taking a shit. I mean, he and the grin on his face the whole time. He's a fun character. Is that something you want? You want to watch a strip tease while you shit, Arnie? <laughs> no, it isn't. I just love that somebody decides that they do want that and they put it on film. I also... <laughs> Don't want to see golden showers in a Russian bed, but somebody wants to, good on them. <laughs>